I'm starting a new series today called How to Be Rich. Now, a lot of people spend a lot of effort trying to get rich, and that's a pretty fruitless uh, task. But the scripture tells us a lot about how to be rich because riches is something God uh, bestows on us uh, as, a, as a gift for our, for our uh, acceptance. And what we typically call getting rich has to do with material accumulations, which, if understood correctly from the scripture, is, is either a curse or a byproduct of already being rich. So, as an introduction to today, since it's July 4th weekend, I'm going to talk some about why America is so economically prosperous. And we have a lot of spiritual poverty, but we also have a lot of spiritual wealth. And if you've spent time in other countries like I have, you can see that when wealth comes to uh, many other countries, it brings death and devastation. Uh, poor Africa. You know, we've, our, our uh, church has done a lot of work in Africa. Every time they discover a new diamond mine or a new copper mine or something, there's a civil war because they have to fight over which big man controls it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really sad since you get to know the heart of the African people and they're such gentle and, and, uh, and happy spirits until a little money shows up and then it all just breaks down. So why is it that America has this uh, amazing ability really comparatively to handle material wealth without it destroying us to the extent it does other places in the world? And Why do we have so much? Just as a overall context you can go to a website called uh, something like uh, globalrichlist.com and you can put in your investment wealth or your income, and it'll tell you how you rank in the world. If you go in and put in your investments are $50 billion, it'll give you this little thing that says, Warren, is that you? <laughs> if not, try again. But if you put in $31,000 as your income, which is below the average income for uh, American workers, if you put in $31,000 a year of income, do you know where you'll rank in the world's wealthiest people? Can you guess? 5%. It's a good guess. Top 1%. You're in the top 1% at $31,000 a year. If you put in a poverty amount like poverty line for family of four is 23850 a year. Poverty. If you're an American and you're in poverty, you're in the top 3% wealthiest people in the world. And if you put in poverty line for a family of one, which is $11,670 a year, you're still the top 15% in the world. Okay, so this top one percent movement of you know they're the top one percent's too wealthy. If you apply that to America, and it's everybody, just about <laughs> it's just a handful of people that don't fit. Well, how did that get that way, and why is it so much? It's it's fairly popular to say, well, America is blessed with uh, natural resources, which it is. There's no doubt it's blessed with natural resources more so than other countries. No, not really. One of the most 
astonishing things to me when I first went to Africa was the immense natural resource wealth around me. Growing up in Texas, I love Texas, but it is a paltry, nasty place compared to Africa from a natural resource standpoint. It is unbelievable how wealthy that place is. They don't have economic development. And why? Why is that? Well, it's because our system of governance is what God gave to Israel to bless them. And it's called self-governance. That's our system of governance is called self-governance. And uh, we are the only large-scale implement, imp- implemented example of uh, self-governance ever in the history of the world. There's a couple of small-scale implementations. Switzerland is a self-governing nation. And in terms of natural resources, Switzerland way at the bottom of the list. It's basically just one big mountain canyon. They don't have nothing. If you go, they, they basically the one thing they have is these big mountains, so people will leave them alone. And it's a nation of badgers. I mean, you can, they have their tunnels dynamited so that they can shut them off quickly. Uh, Hitler didn't invade. They weren't neutral so much as they were just not worth going and getting. Hitler determined he would lose like three divisions and have to fight hand-to-hand, valley-to-valley to get them, and they just they weren't strategically important. Uh, but they've, they've been fairly well self-governing since the 1100s when William Tell happened and they became a, a democracy. And they're one of the wealthiest nations in the world, even though they have any natural resources. Switzerland is where the Reformation was born. John Calvin was in Geneva, which is Swiss. Zwingli was in uh, Zurich. Well, the self-governance came to America, and, and part of what I'd like to do today is talk about American history and how it's, how it's, it's different, it's exceptional. American exceptionalism, exception means different than everybody else. You can be exceptionally bad, you can be exceptionally good. Exceptional just means different. And in our case, the thing that makes us really exceptional is this governance structure. We are so used to it, we don't even know it's different. It's all we've ever known. If you go to another country and spend much time there, you will think that they are weird. Because you'll be at a restaurant and the tables need to be arranged and you'll get up with your friends and just rearrange everything and they will think you're nuts because you didn't go get the authority and ask for permission and, you know, petition and or you, you've risked uh, offending somebody or something like that. We do this kind of stuff all the time. The rest of the world thinks we're unbelievably arrogant because when we see a problem, we just get together and fix it. This is because we're self-governing. We're exceptional. Well, I want to I give you some historical examples to back my point. And then I want to give you the biblical basis for this and and I want to show you that God actually implemented this system of governance as the ideal when he founded Israel. So first let me tell you a few historical stories and I'm I'm going to do some reading to you. I hope I can read sufficiently where it's it's interesting to you. Let me tell you the story of Peter Muhlenberg. Peter Muhlenberg was a pastor and he was uh, also a general in the Revolutionary Uh, army 
Well, Peter Muhlenberg, if you go to the U.S. Capitol, his statue's there. He's in Statuary Hall. Each state gets two statues in the U.S. Capitol. And he's there for the state of Pennsylvania. And the event that's depicted in his statue happened from the pulpit. And he gave a sermon from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And he preached, according to the story, he preached and says, To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck what's planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace. Time to refrain from embracing. Time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep. Time to throw away, a time to tear. Time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate. Time of war and time of peace. And he took off his robe. And underneath he had his Continental Army uniform. And he said, and this is a time for war. He marched to the back of the room. He said, who's going to join me to fight? And he recruited 300 guys that formed the nucleus of that company. He was at the Battle of Yorktown. He was at Valley Forge with George Washington. They were called the Black Robe Brigade, these preachers of liberty against tyranny. His brother, Peter Muhlenberg's brother, was really against him joining the Continental Army until the British burned his church down in front of him. And then he changed his mind (laughs) and said, I think you ought to go. Well, so there was this connection between what they saw as their religious duty and what they saw as their patriotic duty. In fact, they were inseparable in the minds of the early American patriots. Let me give you another story that makes the same point and really cements this idea of self-governance. This is from the remarks before the Sons of the American Revolution, April 19th, 1894. April 19th was an important day in American history because the Battle of Concord, shot heard around the world, was fired on April 19th, 1775. So, Concord, Massachusetts is where one of the two big battles was fought, the lawn at Lexington and then Concord just a few miles down the road. And a fellow named uh, uh, Mellon Chamberlain, who was a school teacher and a historian, was giving this speech to the citizens of Concord. And he's at the church in Concord where the Continental Congress had actually met at one point. And he says, citizens of Concord, this is your shrine. He's talking about this church. It ought to be the shrine of a nation. Invoke it for divine protection from lightning and tempest. Provide for it protection from fire and wasting tooth of time. Because because it had so much significance. He's talking to the citizens of Concord about this event. The shot heard around the world. The the, uh, Battle of Concord. And then he says, of the events of April 1975, I need say, but little they've passed into history. Every year they're recounted in our public journals. 
Well, at least that was the case <laughs> in the remarks in 1894. They're household words. My purpose is not to rehearse them, but to ask what these events mean for the colon- meant for the colonists at the time, what they've meant since, and what they may mean for future ages. On the first question, I have some direct, authentic intelligence from an actor in those scenes. When the action at Lexington on the morning of the 19th was known at Danvers, another town in Massachusetts, the Minutemen there, under the lead of Captain Gideon Foster, made that memorable march, or run rather, of 16 miles in four hours and struck Percy's flying column at West Cambridge. Brave but incautious in flanking the Redcoats, they were flanked themselves and badly pinched, leaving seven dead, two wounded, and one missing. Among those who escaped was Levi Preston, afterwards known as Captain Levi Preston. When I, Mellon Chamberlain says, was about 21, and Captain Preston about 91, I interviewed him as to what he did and thought 67 years before, on April 19, 1775. So Levi Preston was 24 when he went to the Battle of Concord. And now, 52 years later, I make my report. A little belated, perhaps, but not too late, I trust, for the morning papers. I guess some things don't change, huh? At that time, of course, I knew all about the American Revolution far more than I know now. (laughs) And now, if I know truly anything, it's chiefly owing to what I've since forgotten of the histories of that event then popular. In other words, he's saying what is popularly taught about the American Revolution was already wrong in 1894, and he's about to correct the record. With an assurance passing even that of the modern interviewer, if that were possible, I began. Captain Preston, why did you go to the Concord fight the 19th of April, 1775? The old man bowed beneath the weight of years, raised himself upright, and turning to me said, What? What? Why why did I go? Yes, I replied. My histories tell me that you men of the revolution took up arms against intolerable impressions. Oppressions. What were they? Oppressions? I didn't feel any. What? Were you not oppressed by the Stamp Act? I never saw one of those stamps. Always understood Governor Bernard put them in Castle William. I'm certain I never paid a penny for any of them. Well, what about then the tea tax? Tea tax? Never drank a drop of this stuff. The boys threw it all overboard. Well, then I suppose you've been reading Harrington or Sidney or Locke about the eternal principles of liberty. Never heard of them. We read only the Bible, the Catechism, what Psalms and hymns, and the Almanac. Well, what then was the matter? What did you mean going to fight? Young man, what we meant going for those red coats was this. We had always governed ourselves, and we always meant to, and they meant we shouldn't. And that gentleman, this is Neville Chamberlain again, uh, Mellon Chamberlain. And that gentleman is the ultimate philosophy of the American Revolution. It correctly assigns its underlying cause. It explains and accounts for the actions of the patriotic party. 
Doubtless there were subsidiary causes affecting localities and interests, especially on the sea coast and in larger commercial towns, but the yeomanry of the interior felt none of those grievances. And yet, from Maine to Georgia, they were among the first to resist the British pretensions. Thomas Paine once said something like this, The British ministry were too jealous of the colonists to govern them justly, too ignorant to govern them well, and too far away to govern them at all. That puts the matter very neatly. But Levi Preston, the Danvers yeoman, put it far better. For no other words known to me ever expressed the actual condition of affairs with more historic truth or more tersely. For the attitude of the colonists was not of slaves seeking liberty, but of free men. Free men for five generations resisting political servitude. You see, when the pilgrims came across and put the Mayflower compact down, they were reiterating what had happened in England hundreds of years before with the Magna Carta. But the Magna Carta only applied to the wealthy landowners. It was, a, it was a statement that the law is above the king for wealthy landowners. It didn't apply to everyone in general. And in America, there was no land-owning monopoly. And so basically, all you had to do to own land is go get some. And it broke that monopoly. So in America, they'd been in ruling themselves since for five generations, 200 years already. The American Revolution was not a revolution per se. It was actually a defensive action to prevent an invasion. Resisting political servitude. And as Mr. Webster, who must often have conversed with his father on the subject, once said with his usual historical accuracy and a felicity all his own, quote, while while actual suffering was yet afar off, they went to war against a preamble. They fought seven years against a declaration. The preamble was that of the Stamp Act, and it said this, Whereas it is necessary to raise a revenue from the colonies for their defense, the declaration was, that the power of Parliament over the colonies extends to all cases, whatever. Samuel Adams properly understood this and coined the phrase taxation without representation, which the the colonists properly interpreted as, if we allow this to happen, we're now slaves. We're not self-governing any longer. Few events in the world's history have been more tremendous consequence than those of the 19th of April, 1775. And nothing but a completed cycle in the world's history will reveal their full significance. And now here we are, 115 years later, 120 years later, still in that cycle. It was no new thing to overthrow dynasties or disrupt empires. It was no new thing to make conquests or repel invasions. But the battlefields on which the condition of any considerable part of the human race has been permanently changed are few. And fewer still on those which has been instituted a new principle of government apparently destined to affect the whole human race. Thermopylae, the 300 uh, Greeks that staved off the Persians for a few days, Thermopylae saved for a time the civilization of Greece. But it did not advance the civilization of the world. Waterloo, where Napoleon fell, 
merely restored the old status of Europe. The wars of the great English Revolution did not bring into the British Constitution true representative government. That came two centuries later with the Reform Bill of 1832, really in response to the American experience. But the Concord fight, as Levi Preston substantially said, preserved, if it did not inaugurate, what Webster called a government of the people, for the people, and accountable to the people. The 19th of April, 1775, was indeed notable in the progress of national autonomy and representative government. Other days come and go. The sun rises and hastens to its setting. But on the 19th of April, no second morn will rise. Its sun, once risen, never set. It still rides high and clear. Its prescribed arc is not through the visible heavens, but over the ages. A mile away from us is the North Bridge. He's again speaking in Concord. We are, a fam- we are familiar with the scene and the incidents which make it memorable. We see Major Buttrick with his little band of farmers moving down to dislodge Captain Laurie's company. We see Isaac Davis and Abner Hosmer fall. We hear Major Buttrick exclaim, Fire, fellow soldiers! For God's sake, fire! That was the fight at Concord Bridge. That was the shot heard for around the world. The shot that will resound through the ages, forever reverberate in the air, forever quicken the pulses of the human race. So, Mellon Chamberlain, through Levi Preston, helps us understand that what is a fairly popular narrative about the American Revolution is totally false. And that is this, that some guys, some genius fellows, snuck away from their ignorant countrymen and went to Philadelphia. And there in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, they concocted something brand new no one had ever thought of. And they came out and said, look, we want to have a free nation. And the Americans said, what a brilliant idea. We will follow you wherever you go. And America was born. And that's just totally false. In fact, the leaders in Philadelphia were great leaders. But they were great leaders because they were opportunistic enough to sniff where everything was going. In 1825, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter. And in the letter, he says, The Declaration of Independence did not express anything new or unknown to the Americans. It was, in fact, intended for the audience of the Europeans to explain to them what was happening over here. Because Europe was a serfdom culture. You had landowners, and they owned the land. And you had serfs, and they belonged to the land. They had rights. The rights ran with the land. And slavery and despotism was the worldwide governance structure. And no one would understand what's happening in, in America without the Declaration of Independence. But there were about a hundred declarations of independence before that one. Towns, states, fire departments, fire associations. Because this was in the heart of the American people. We've governed ourselves for five generations. And we don't now want to change and be slaves. You're familiar with Patrick Henry, 
in his give me liberty or give me death speech, it expresses much of the same sentiment. And if, if you hear some of that speech in light of the context I've just given you, perhaps it will bring some new meaning. I'm going to take some excerpts from this speech. And in the course of doing this, I'm not taking historical liberties because no one wrote down the speech at the time. It was concocted from people's memories. Apparently, Patrick Henry was such a riveting speaker that very little of what he said was recorded because the transcriptors would get so enthralled with listening to him, they would forget to write things down. After the the Constitution we're under now was adopted, which Patrick Henry opposed, by the way, uh, George Washington called him out of retirement to convince some of the states not to nullify the Constitution. And he came out of retirement and he gave this speech. And at the speech, there was a giant audience because he was such a, an enormous draw. And essentially in the speech he said, you know, I told you not to adopt this Constitution. And you can't really nullify it. You gave that right up. And so he dissipated the, the uh, tempest at that point in time. And as he was leaving, he turned to someone and said, there's going to be a war fought over this. <laughs> and, of course, we know the Civil War uh, happened not too long later, within a hundred years. Well, in his speech, he is answering some people who say, we shouldn't take up arms against the British. We should just negotiate. And he stands and he addresses the president of the meeting at this point. And he says, Mr. President, no man thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism, patriotism as well as the abilities of the very worthy gentlemen who have just addressed the house. Now, I love this because he builds this guy up. Now he's going he's to tear him to shreds. <laughs> but different men often see the same subject in different lights. And therefore... I hope it will not be thought disrespectful to those gentlemen if, entertaining as I do opinions of a character very opposite of theirs, I shall speak forth my sentiments freely and without reserve. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason toward my country and of an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven which I revere above all earthly kings." Mr. President, it is a natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth. See, you think Herman thinks current realities and acquired taste is just him, right? <laughs> that says that. Patrick Henry understood that. We're apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who, having eyes, see not? Having ears, hear not? The things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation? For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I'm willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided. That's the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging the future but by the past. 
And judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last ten years to justify those hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and this house. I asked gentlemen, what means this martial array? The British had brought a bunch of troops into the uh, Americas and were actually forced, forcing them to be housed by American citizens. What can means this martial array if its purpose is not to force us to submission? Can gentlemen assign any other possible motive for it? Has Great Britain any enemy in this quarter of the world to call for all this accumulation of navies and armies? No, sir, she has none. They're meant for us. They can be meant for no other. They're sent over to bind and rivet upon us those chains which the British ministry have been so long forging. And what have we to oppose them? Shall we try argument? Sir, we've been trying that for the last ten years. Have we anything new to offer upon the subject? Nothing. Tell us, sir, they, t- they tell us, sir, that we're weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. English was the most power- England was the most powerful nation in the world at that point. But when will we be stronger? Will it be next week? Or the, or the next year? Will it be when we're totally disarmed? And when a British guard will be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies have bound us hand and foot? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. Three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess, are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There's a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There's no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable. Let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry peace, peace, but there's no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it the gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is it life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty, give me death. So you can see that this this intense desire to perpetuate self-governance is deeply ingrained in the American psyche. And as a matter of fact, it's so deeply ingrained, we don't even know it's happened. What is self-governance and where in the world did it come from? Well, self-governance is a philosophy of governing that's based on three important pillars. 
The first important pillar is the rule of law. The idea that the law is bigger than any man. The law is above any lawgiver. And of course, that can only be rooted in uh, transcendent God. Rule of law. The second thing it's founded upon is private property. Private property ownership is necessary for self-governance. The third thing that it's founded on is dispersed decision-making. Let's review how God set up Israel when he first formed the nation. Now, the children of Israel were in Egypt, and what was their condition of governance? They were slaves. Okay, What did they own? They owned nothing. How did they determine what to do and what not to do? And somebody told them. And how were decisions made? By, the, by, the, by their masters. So God brought them out. And the first big major event that they had, I'm, 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 I'm skipping the wars and so forth, uh, the first ba- major event they had was they went to Mount Sinai. And what did they get at Mount Sinai? The law. Ten Commandments. What was the essence of the Ten Commandments? Well, what did the Ten Commandments really get across? What were the two big things? Love God and love others. If you think about the first commandments, there's no other God. Don't have idols. It's basically there's only one authority that can tell you what to do. And it's not a person. And it's not another God. Idolatry, if you think about it, is based in the idea that I can get what I want myself. All I have to do is bribe the appropriate authority. The priest... The statue, whatever it is, I can get what I want. When God is saying, I will have none of that. I will tell you what's in your best interest, and it's authoritative. You can pretend it's not, and it won't change anything. I'm telling you what's best. And the ultimate of what's best is, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't envy what they have. Now, how can you exercise loving your neighbor yourself and not envying what they have if they don't have anything? You can't do it. So private property is actually embedded in the Ten Commandments because that's how love happens. It happens when it's voluntary. And if you have a central authority that owns everything, you cannot have voluntary beneficial interaction. It's all coerced. So right there at the Mount Sinai, God sets up the Ten Commandments. How well was it received? They did really good for 40 days. And then they reverted back, right back to, let's get something we can control. But when we honor God as God, and which is basically saying, you know best, and we accept what our best is, which is rooted in how we treat other people, then amazing blessings flow. He promised it. So they got the, they got the Ten Commandments and then they you know, booted their opportunity to take the land, wandered for 40 years, and a new generation arose that had not been slaves. And this new generation that had not been slaves now goes into the promised land and they take the high ground and the fortified cities along the high ground. 
And as soon as the major fortifications and the, and the gate there, Jericho and Ai, and then all the cities along the high ground, as soon as that is taken, they divvy the land. And what, how do they divvy the land? By family. The property is given to the families. And property was allowed to be uh, sold or mortgaged, but never without the right of redemption. Because that property was something that God had given. It was considered, it was considered uh, something holy. When King Ahab, you may remember, goes to Naboth and says, I want your vineyard, I'll trade you for a better piece of property because I want this one. Naboth says, God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. Because it was sacred. Of course, Naboth got killed and Ahab took it from him. Because they understood private property was their inheritance, their possession, what what sustained them. So you get the law, you get private property, and they dispersed the tribes and 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 they just made their own decisions in their local areas. There was no central government. There was no mandatory taxation. They had a tax system and it was voluntary. Uh, Look at Judges chapter 5 with me real quick. Judges is during this time uh, where they're supposed to do what God, what was right in the eyes of God by choosing to do it. But too often, Judges chapter 5, too often they did what was right in their own eyes. And in Judges chapter 5, Deborah and Barak saying on that day, this is after they had defeated the Syrians, saying, When leaders led in Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves, bless the Lord. Okay? So when an army was raised against Syria, how was it raised? How was it raised? Volunteers. How did the leaders get chosen? They volunteered. Because this was a self-governing country. How did they do with their self-governance? Well, they, when they chose to do well, they were blessed. And when they chose to do poorly, they were oppressed. And we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is the best illustration of self-governance I know. And the people come to Samuel in verse 5 and they say to him, Look, you're old, Samuel. Samuel was the last judge under the period of self-governance. They said to him, Look, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. They were corrupt. So they had a legitimate complaint. But here's their solution. Now make us a king to judge us like the other nations. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in that they say to you, For they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. See, this idea that we will adhere to the law because we choose to adhere to it, we will honor the property of others because we choose to honor it, and we will do right by our neighbor because we choose to do it, That is God's best. And the people have rejected self-governance now, and their punishment is, as God normally does with His wrath, He's going to give them what they ask for. I think ultimately, 
The lake of fire is going to be people getting what they wanted. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, and God gave us over to our own lust. The thing greatly displeased Samuel, and he said, Heed their voice. Verse 8, According to all the works which they've done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they've forsaken me and served other gods, they're doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However... You shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. This is because this is going to be their punishment. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people asked for a king. He said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. What's happened? Are they volunteering now? Now they're, they're, being, they're coerced for the army. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. What's happened now? Forced labor. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields. Now what's happened? He's going to take their property. And your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his offers and servants. Oh, for only a tenth. Taxes. Not voluntary. He will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day. I'm oppressed. I don't own any property. My taxes are too high. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we'll have a king for us. We have three reasons for it. Number one, we want to be like the other nations. We want to fit in. We don't want to be exceptional anymore. Number two, we don't want to make our own decisions. We want the king to judge us. We don't want to be responsible for our own actions. We want somebody else to take that responsibility. Number three, we want to be taken care of. We don't want to care for one another anymore. We want somebody to fight our battles for us. We want someone to care for us. And provide us safety and security. So, now, America has a poverty line. That's the top 3% of income in the world. And an average wage that's above the top 1% in the world. And the reason is because of love. Because to the extent we have honored... Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, it creates massive amount of prosperity. That prosperity has not always been handled consistently, as you know. Levi Preston and these guys said all these wonderful things, but allowed slavery to con- on the base of race to continue. And Abraham Lincoln commented on that in his second inaugural address. 
And he says, at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there's less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Then, a statement somewhat in detail, of a course to be pursued, seemed fitting and proper. Now, at the expiration of four years, during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phrase of the great contest, which still absorbs the attention and grosses the energies of the nation, little that is new could now be presented. The progress of our arms, upon which all else chiefly depends, is well known to the public as well as myself, and is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all. With high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. I'm not going to predict what's going to happen. On the occasion corresponding to this inauguration, four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties depreciated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than making it perish, and the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew this interest was somehow the cause of the war to strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest with the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should desire to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us, not, let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, And of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has His own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses, which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through His appointed time, He now wills to remove and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came? Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away? Yet... If God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether.
We don't have inaugural dresses like that anymore. (laughs) Because, although we have a self-governing nation and it's been immensely blessed, to the extent we've departed from it, there's been a price to pay. Well, now we're in the throes of another great conflict. And this conflict is over whether we're going to choose a king to take care of us, make our decisions for us, tell us what to do, distribute the the property to whom they wish, determine what kind of behavior is appropriate for us, or whether we're going to demand the government be accountable to us, take off our robes, and exercise our citizenship rights. And that happens each one of us do our part to exercise self-governance within our immediate sphere of influence. And self-governance is doing unto others as we wish they would do unto us. Self-governance is taking the Ten Commandments into the marketplace and exercising them unto God, not to man. Uh, Self-governance is exercising our freedom to love others, not to bring coercion to others. Self-governance is taking responsibility for things we don't have to take responsibility for, but taking responsibility because we choose to do so to bless others. I hope you'll pray for our nation. We've been through this many times before. Levi Preston went through it. Uh, We went through it in the Civil War. We went through it during the Great World Wars. And now we're going through it, and this time it's a political conflict. It's a cultural conflict. And it's up to us to do our part. The way we live, the way we pray. God, I pray that we will uh, take these great, this great heritage we have and live it faithfully. pray that we'll have the courage of Levi Preston, the determination of Patrick Henry, the understanding of taking what we know of your word into the marketplace of Peter Muhlenberg, the humility of Samuel, And I pray, God, that we would carry freedom in our hearts and exercise it gladly in love to all those whom we touch. I pray for our country, Lord. I pray that you'll heal our nation, that you'll bring it back to its roots, that our country as a whole would say, your judgments are righteous and true altogether. In Jesus' name, amen.